Nico Mulli is a performer as well as a composer, and he is, of course, based in New York. He's a graduate of the prestigious Juilliard School, and he's already had works premiered by two of the largest and most preeminent of the American orchestras, the Chicago Symphony and the New York Philharmonic. He's written dance pieces for the American Ballet Theatre and Netherlands Ballet, and you may have seen the work that he made last year with Stephen Petronio at the Barbican as part of last year's Dance Umbrella. He's also collaborated with Bjork and Anthony of Anthony and the Johnsons, and he's written the film score for the reader. As John Berry, English National Opera's artistic director, has said, Nico Muli straddles so many different musical genres, contemporary classical music, jazz, pop, film work. One of the things that attracted me about Two Boys was its subject matter. If you could believe that opera can represent strong political and social stories, which I think it can more successfully than any other arts medium, then Two Boys offers an absorbing subject for an opera for English National Opera. Two Boys, with a libretto by Craig Lucas, is a collaboration between this house and the Met in New York. Though in a very general sense, Two Boys takes its cue perhaps from actual events in a British industrial city. It's concerned principally with the dark world of the internet, a world that all of us now spend our lives, part of our lives in, and which has certainly touched us in ways that none of us of a certain age can have imagined. A teenage boy is stabbed, an older boy is caught on CCTV, leaving the scene of the crime. It would seem to be an open and shut case for the police. However, Detective Inspector Anne Strawson uncovers in the course of her investigation a bizarre history that will take us through chat room meetings, mysterious cyber identities, and supposed spy rings and very peculiar cyber sex. All of that awaits you, ladies and gentlemen, later this evening. <laughs> what awaits you now is the composer, Nico Muli. What was the genesis of Two Boys? How did it all begin? I, I got a phone call from the Metropolitan Opera and um, they were sort of inaugurating a scheme with Lincoln Center Theatre, and they said, would you be interested in writing some piece? And I said, yes, absolutely. And they said, come up and talk to us. And I turned up and assumed it would be a kind of casual conversation. But I, was, I was sort of led into Peter Bill's lair, which is sort of like a Bond villain's office, <laughs> glass, <laughs> and essentially he was like, do you have any ideas? And I, I thought, well, I should say something now, right? That was the first thing that popped out was, Remember that, that crazy moment when a, when a young boy got stabbed, but it was kind of his crazy idea? And, and essentially they said, that sounds amazing, let's, let's start working on it. And did you choose Craig to, to work with, or did Craig choose you, or did somebody else choose I And mean, how did that um, work? Andre Bishop, who runs Living Center Theatre, who was a sort of co-commissioner of this, of this um, work, said immediately, you know, there's one American playwright who's, who's done a lot of work on um, stories that take place both online and offline, and that's Craig Lucas, and you should call him. And I did, and he was strangely in town that day and said, let's have lunch. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was kind of magic. And he was caught by the same idea. He was fired by it. And I said, this is the idea. He said, it's amazing, love it, let's, let's go. And then what happened? Well, and then it was now. <laughs> um, no, we, uh, I want you to say he went away to a writer's colony somewhere in Massachusetts, uh, sweated blood for several years. He, no? He, Craig and I actually both work in, in, a, in a similar way, which is to say, which is to say, quickly, and then with a lot of fretting after that. Um, so Craig, within sort of two weeks of us of us starting this process, had a, a relatively complete four-paragraph draft of the structure of how this thing would work, um, and then you know, I, we and we were emailing sort of hundreds of times a day about it, and speaking on the phone hundreds of times a day, and sort of two weeks after that, I had I had a draft of the first act. Yeah. 
and then two weeks after that, the second act, and, that, and then and for me, basically, if I'm setting text, it's very easy to look at a, look at something on the page and say, I know exactly what to do, um, and maybe eighty percent of the libretto was in that in that form already from draft one, and then things that weren't, I could figure out what the problems were. It's a, generally things to do with word choice. Like I know that that's a climactic, dramatic moment, but I can't make it on that vowel kind of thing. And, and were you able to suggest and, or actually add things to the libretto? And how did the collaboration work when you began to make the changes of the kind you just described? In, in general, I mean, what, one thing that, that both Craig and I agreed on was that we were going we to let the drama dictate both the, the work that both of us did. So it, it was never the case that I was saying, I need you know, eight more sentences of this because I like the music that I'm writing for this and I want it to, it to go on for much longer. I mean, it was always in the sense of keeping the story moving. Um, and in that way, what, what the end result is a very concise and very, I would say, specific three-way collaboration between Bart Shear, the, the director, Craig, and, and me. Um, there isn't the sense of, of um, no one of us was really indulged in, in any, we, we were not dwelling on anything. And, and that, was part of the, that was part of the design of the piece was that it, in as much as it is about crime and the solving of a crime, it had to be constantly in motion. And there aren't very many moments for sort of poetic, poetic reflection. And, and when they come, they're just, they're very brief. How did you start the music? At the beginning? Or did you start in the middle? Or? Uh, sort of. I, I started in, in um, there's a scene in church in which basically all, two of the, the, the two boys loosely meet, although meet is not quite the right word, um, but there's a, there's a sort of moment. Um, and I started there um, because I knew that there was this big sort of set. It, in, it's a grand opera that I've written, and normally grand operas have a bunch of set pieces where it's like, and now we're in the palace, and now we're in the town square, and we only have one, which is now we're in church. Um, and so I started with that and built everything out from there. Um, so there's, there's material in church that basically only, that, that radiates out um, basically to every, everywhere else in peace. So everything that we need musically to know actually is within that scene? S sort of, but sometimes by omission. Mm. So for instance, the, the, one, the one person who's not in that church scene is the, is the detective character, who, um, and her, her material is like the opposite of the church material, if that makes any sense. Mm. So there's a lot of I'm really, I'm really interested you should have started with that scene, because um, had, before I met you with the scene of Trenia last year, um, I think I knew you as someone who wrote quite extensively for church choirs. And I, oh, I felt that was what I'd heard. Mm. And I wonder if that was a kind of a nice place to start because it's a kind of area musically that you feel quite comfortable with. It, it is, yeah. And it's also, I mean, the, the moment in the, in the upper takes place, it, it's meant to be a sort of even song. And, and writing an even song service is something that comes very quickly to me and, and fluently. And it felt like if I framed the piece with that, um, and if that was a sort of generative um, pond from which all other life forms in spring, that I would be at least setting myself up for, for an easier ride. And, and say a little bit about the, the role of the chorus, because you've written wonderful music for the chorus. Well, Craig and I decided that the chorus, we wanted it to function almost explicitly um, in, the, in the same way that the, um, the orchestral interludes work in, in um, Peter Grimes, in which there's this kind of constant quasi-menacing presence, but sometimes comforting presence of the ocean. Um, and there's a kind of swirl of, you know, it's, and, and it, they're interludes in as much as they, there's no singing, but there's also this sense of it really affects the, the drama of the next scene. So the chorus in, in Two Boys is used in, in that way where all of a sudden the chorus just explodes out of someone's bedroom and you have 
this sense of the, the infinite possibility of, of an online world. Um, it's not necessarily always clear what, what people are saying, which is deliberate. It's more like, a, again, sort of the, the ocean of, of chatter. Um, the, one of the images that I was thinking about a lot was sort of in the last 10 years, a lot of, a lot of um, government intelligence has been decoding chatter. And I like the idea that it's, it's almost like water, that you turn it on and turn it off, the chatter. It's not like a, a finite substance. You, 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 you work with Philip Glass, um, and I wondered to what extent the people you've worked with, the people you admire, find inevitably a kind of a role in the music that you wanted to write for this piece. I think in the inevitable way. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think if, if they didn't, there would be something wrong. <laughs> it's just, I, mean, you know, the, the, I mean, the most honest way to write anything is to be a function of your, the genetic makeup of your musicality, I think. Don't you think? Yes, I think absolutely. No, I, I have no problems with that. In the same way of saying, you know, like, how do your mother and father relate to who you are? <laughs> <laughs> one last thought. I mean, this is a big thought, but it's one last thought. We might come back to it later. Is as I left, having seen the dress rehearsal, it just occurred to me as I was walking home that, of course, this is a piece about identity. Uh, and maybe all operas, in a funny way, are about identity. Yeah. And that you've written a piece that's absolutely at the heart of one of the kind of main themes that threads its way through the history of opera. I would hope so. I mean, I, was, I certainly wasn't setting out to write something that was outside of the, of the genre. And I think, you know, what, I mean, one of the things that's, that's fun about the internet and, and people sort of you know, be, uh, being other people online is that it really is a very old theatrical device. Some of the very first pieces of music that you could even call an opera, I'm thinking about sort of Partenope, just as an example, of, um, you know, it, it uses disguise and mistaken identity for political or sexual purposes. And you see it through Mozart, you see it through Wagner, you see it, you know, all the way through. The internet happens to be a different sort of delivery system, but the, the emotional content of why people use disguise, yeah. disguises and why people would, would try to pretend to be someone they're not, and the inevitable question of, yes, it's dangerous, but sometimes deeper truths get told by one person in disguise speaking to someone they know or love. So there's a, it's old fashioned. We're going to talk to Andrew, to Mark Grimmer. So come back in a moment. Okay, I'm going to go over there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right. Our second guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Mark Grimmer. Uh, he's one of three people who lead a company called 59 Productions. Um, and you may remember from last season that stunning diver at the beginning of Pearl Fishers who seemed to dive right the way from the top of the proscenium arch down to the pit, accompanied by a stream of magic pearl-like bubbles. Well, that was... 59 Productions. Um, or you might remember the predictions in Dr. Atomic, again, 59 Productions. Mark, can I ask you, what kind of brief were you given for this, this show? There, there wasn't a brief at all, because that would sort of suggest that there was a premeditated idea about what the piece was going to look like or what it was going to be. What was great about it was, uh, on the page, it looked like an absolutely impossible thing to stage. So look, figure that out was basically what Nico says to us. And um, I mean, there were, there were certain specific things that we knew that we had to help achieve to create a, a sense of the online world, but also to be able to facilitate moving between very real locations very quickly, because Craig wasn't, neither was Nico very generous in the amount of time that they gave us to get from one scene to another. So you'd be in a police station one moment and then an internet chat room the next moment. So we knew we had to create a design which was plastic, plastic at times, but fluid, that did both a, a, a virtual and a real world. That was kind of what we had to do. What do you think as you began to work on this were the, were the important ideas that emerged that you needed to work on? We, we, I think we, we became aware quite quickly of what we didn't want to do and we didn't want to fall into the trap of using digital technology to represent a digital world because that was there at our fingertips. 
So we didn't necessarily want the online world to feel particularly technological in a way. So we were quite keen to kind of find poetic or abstract ways of representing online communication. We toyed actually for a long time with the idea of whether or not we should ever see somebody on a laptop, or whether we should see any representations of text, and those were conversations and debates that we had right up until, well, until after the dress rehearsal, in fact, at about 5.45 on Friday evening, when we kind of had to stop. Literally for that late? Yeah. Not very much sleep happened between the dress rehearsal and the opening night, so there was new material being put into the show literally until the house opened. That's fascinating. If you were traditional scenographers, I mean, either you built sets or designed sets or you indeed painted sets, that wouldn't be possible, no. would it? So there's something rather wonderful about what, what's possible even if you were up all night. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's very, very exciting to be able to react so um, quickly, I mean, quickly and, and right up to the very last moment because it was obvious with this piece that we were you know, it was a remarkable collaboration and a remarkable sort of meeting of different disciplines. And one thing that we kind of promised to bring to the table was to be able to change our minds right up until the last moment. That must have driven everybody mad, but we'd kind of, you know, we, we were sort of fairly comfortable with the uncomfortableness of doing that. It also requires a high degree of trust in you by, by the rest of the team. Yeah, and thank God, because in terms of the process of making theatre, this is something that we as a company have been through a lot before, and Bart, I'm sure, has too and Craig, and I think that for Nico it was a baptism of fire of being thrown into this situation and understandably he was asking questions like, well, why haven't you finished this stuff now? Yeah. I've finished the music. It meant that we did have, underneath all that, um, an enormous amount of trust from Nico and from Bart and from Michael and from Craig and from everyone to allow us to take the risks that we needed to take to make the Michael Jürgen, which is finished the design. Yeah, Michael Jürgen, the set designer. Yeah. Yeah. I have a sense, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, because I, I only saw the dress rehearsal, you tell me now you've changed so much. <laughs> but I had a sense then that, the rehearsal, that what I was seeing was, as it were, various kind of themes and variations on the idea of network and networks. That was really important. Uh, we wanted to create for a series of visual metaphors for connectedness and fracture and what, you know, what the idea of the internet might look like. I mean, we all know what a computer screen looks like and what scrolling text across the stage looks like, and we had to do a bit of that for, for various sort of narrative reasons. Um, but we were interested in creating a more poetic or abstract version of what interconnectedness means, and that's kind of what the internet is about. You know, it's about people, individuals or groups of people connecting with one another for, you know, for good or nefarious reasons. So through the, it was the chorus, the choruses that Nico just talked about were like our big set piece moments where we knew we had to represent this sort of polyphony of voices and, and um, create a, a beautiful or troubling way of, of putting that on stage. There is so often a sense when we see representations of the internet of it being uh, another world and our own world existing in parallel. You don't do this at all. We are um, in one place. I think so, yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting because Nico also is a, is a very visual person and we, over the course of the last 18 months we've sort of been exchanging photographs and references from movies and all sorts of things and quite often what the internet looks like is um, you know a field of lavender or a flock of birds or you know um, a, a bunch of people having a picnic in a park it doesn't necessarily look like the sorts of things literal representations of itself so we tried to find some analogues within the real world which represented that and particularly in the finale we, we go back to a natural version of what interconnectedness is like mm. I guess. L looking at it now what do you think? 
Thank God it's over. <laughs> no, I mean, it's been really, really remarkable. It's been incredibly hard work. What we tried to do, everybody, every single department tried to do something insanely ambitious, and it was uncomfortably close to impossible to pull off, and it just remained on the right side of possible. Mark Grimmer, thank you very much Thanks. indeed for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, we always have music at Join the Conversation, and that's what we're going to have some music now. Um, Nico Mulli, no less, is going to accompany the soprano Valerie Reed, who covers the role of Detective Anne Strawson uh, in the show, and in the production also sings the role of her aged mother. Anyway, they're going to perform, Valerie and Nico, a little of the music from the beginning of the opera. Uh, so would you please welcome uh, Nico Mulli again and Valerie Reed.
Thank you both, Valerie and, and, and Nico Mulli. This is a woman, as you've suggested, but as we've just heard, who is lost, really, from the beginning, isn't she? Yes. She's... Not only is she struggling with this case, but I think she's, she's kind of at a crossroads as well with her life. She's, you know, she's worked... She's in her 50s and she's worked hard for years and years, worked too hard, probably, and now she feels that life has sort of passed her by and is questioning, has it all been worth it you know she's she's worked so hard and she, all she has to show for it is a bunch of arpeggios yeah, exactly yeah and there just doesn't seem to be you know this seems to be just work then she goes home and she's she's a carer for her mother who's disabled so you know she's sort of there's there's no sort of um normal life for her i think and i think she feels that she's really really missed out on all the good things she's not she hasn't made relationships she's not married she's she uh, she hasn't had children which is probably another complaint of her mother you know her mother just seems to criticize the whole time so yeah i think she really feels that 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 this case is testing for her in, in more ways than just solving the case. It's, it's just like, well, what am I about, you know? Am I good enough at my, what I do? And, you know, it just goes round and round in circles, questioning herself. Moves on. Do you think we come to actually sympathise with her and to understand her in a way that we don't at the beginning? Do we actually begin to care for Anne? I think we do, because you desperately really want this woman to get a break, I think, you know. it's. It's just so tough on her the whole time and there just seems to be no let up and you just want her just to get something, some light in the tunnel, just just for her, you know, just to, to get a bit of a break and just 
to give her some kind of confidence in herself, you know, because we really see her really doubting herself throughout the whole piece. And it's something that the, the music that surrounds her and the physical spaces that surround her, they're oppressive. And it's, there's yeah, this constant sense constant. of, and from all elements of the project, just from, from the acting, from the direction, from, from, the, from the projections and from, from the space and the orchestration, she's really swimming up, upstream in a sense. And, and, and there is a psychological oppression of her mother, who is smart, <laughs> which again is you, yeah. who is kind her of smart, wise, and who is pretty vicious. She's, yeah, she's, but she, I think the mother think, hopes that the, the criticism that she gives her daughter, she wants her daughter to be okay in the end. You know, all mothers want, want their children to be okay, and especially, you know, when she's thinking that she might not be around for, for a good bit longer, she wants to know that the daughter's going to be all right. And, you know, she, she'll come out with these lines, you know, if only you did this, you'd be fine, or if you did that, or if you met this perfect man and who would whisk you off and everything got would be hair, fine. Got your you hair know, done, yeah. yeah, you just do these things, you know. And it's like, the Anne comes from work, she's probably getting criticized for you know not getting as far ahead on the case and then she comes home and she gets more from mother you know but mother is very straightforward down the line black and white you, you find that Anna is a lot more old-fashioned in her approach you know she still handwrites her police notes she doesn't know anything about computers other than maybe switch it on and do an email but you know the internet is a whole just a whole new world that she's, she's never been part of. We, we should let you, Valerie, go away and do this extraordinary you. transformation which yeah. you're going to emerge as, well, as, as a character who looks a little bit like Norman Bates's mother, <laughs> I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Had we, I thought to myself, been sitting in the San Carlo Opera House in Naples at the beginning of the 19th century, the first two Ks perhaps, we should have expected, as of right, new works right the way through the season. Uh, and we would have expected um, failure to be part of what we, we saw, though we would always hope for success. Times, alas, have changed. Uh, and it's new work, new operas that we're going to talk about now with Nico Muller and with Gillian Moore. We're currently Head of Contemporary Culture for London South Back Centre, and she was, of course, Artistic Director of the London Sinfonietta from 1998 to 2006. I want to start with a question really for both of you. Gillian, uh, well, but let me start with Nico. To what extent does writing an opera, Nico, represent an enormous investment in terms of time for a composer? To a, a large extent. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a huge... It's by far the, the... Even proportional to how many minutes of music... I mean, normally, in, in the kind of mercenary system of if you're trying to plan out your year, you say, all right, I have a 20-minute piece to write for, you know, orchestra. That'll take this much amount of time. This, this took so much more time than I could have ever possibly have imagined. I assumed that it would take sort of roughly the same amount as writing orchestra music. It took about four times that. Um, Why do you think it took four times that? Was that because you were thinking all the time about these many layers of the drama? So many layers, and so many, so many layers are non musical at the, at, at the beginning. So it's yeah. not like a, you know, a, sort of a symphonic space where the music is also determining the flow of time. Yeah. Because um, the drama has to do that, so it was a very complicated process. And we also, I mean, and this is something that you, I'm sure you know about, is that we, the workshop process of we had three for this piece. You know, seeing something through with actual instruments and actual singers makes such a huge difference. Yes. Julian, what, what, from your perspective, are the difficulties in commissioning new music? Well, commissioning is, of course, a massive risk. Um, I'm not generally involved in um, commissioning opera as such, although it, it has happened on, on a small scale, mostly, um, with the London Sinfonietta. But, you know, when you commission a piece of music, you just don't know what you're going to get. And it does. Music takes a long time. You know, it can take you three weeks to write a gesture for a full orchestra, never mind an opera as well, that takes a few seconds and it's over, it's gone. 
and for everybody, for the, for the artist, for the composer, and for the commissioners, that is an enormous risk. With opera, of course, the risks are multiplied because you have this multi-art form thing. And here, here at ENO, of course, um, it, they're very adventurous because they, they, they're not only commissioning um, who they see to be the most exciting composers, but they're also working with people who are at the cutting edge of theatre you know, uh, and, of, and of visual representation. We've just heard about that now. And we, and, Companies like Punchdrunk and Improbable, etc. So you know the the risks and the money and the time are absolutely enormous. And of course, it is over in how many performances have we got of this? Seven. Seven performances, and then you know, luckily you go on to the Met. But still, when you think of the life of a film, which might be comparable in ter in terms of the time of its gestation, it's it's really nothing. So you know, why on earth? Does anybody still continue to commission opera? And I think, I suppose I am gratified by the fact, the idea that 400 years on from uh, Monteverdi's Orfeo, mm -hmm. people are still crazy about opera. And I see it everywhere, new opera. I see new opera everywhere. Of course, you say, Christopher, that you know, if you were um, 100, 150 years ago, if you were in the opera house, like if, as in if you were in the concert hall, it would be just a diet of new stuff. That you, It would be only new stuff that you were... Um, coming to listen to and to watch. But nonetheless, I see new opera happening everywhere. I've, I've been to see opera in pubs in London. But one of the most powerful things I saw at the end of last year was a, a, an opera um, on the raven of, um, of Edgar Allan Poe, which was one singer and one clarinet player, and it was fantastic. And then, of course, we've had Anna Nicole at the Opera House, and we've had, we've had two boys here. So people really still are investing on all, in all sorts of scales in new opera, and I think that's, that is gratifying and exciting. Do, do you think collaboration, this is a question for both of you, but do you think collaboration is the best way of ensuring that we continue this process of renewing the form? When you say collaboration, with other With other opera houses, other yeah. institutions, of not trying to go it alone. Well, the mechanics of, of doing it and the, and the finances of doing it um, mean that that's often the most practical way, as it is with commissioning any um, work or any productions. And, you know, at South Bank Centre, I'm usually commissioning music or music with dance, and you're very often part of a network of several um, art centres, several orchestras, several, um, and in this case, several opera houses. I think financially and practically that's the way of doing it. And also it gives a kind of sense, I don't know what you feel, Nico, but does it feel better for you? You're not just speaking to this wonderful audience here, you're actually going to be speaking to an audience It in does, York. and the only disadvantages are, are administrative, which, you know, generally I I, might, I don't have to really deal with, but with something like an opera, because it's so collaborative, you know, there's, there's a designer, but then there's sort of the technical department here and the technical department there, mm -hmm. and then there's a music staff here and the music staff there. I mean, you know, writing something for two houses is enormously complicated and enormously fun. Mm. It isn't necessarily like a, a sort of silver bullet solution. Like, it, yeah. you know, I mean, for instance, we, I, I uncovered the other day a, a sort of 40 email chain about the size of paper on which the parts for the strings mm. would be printed. Mm. <laughs> I, last year I was involved in the commission from Philip Glass, in fact, which was a collaboration between New York um, Science Festivals, a piece between Philip Glass and Brian Green, who's a very famous... Oh, is it that crazy movie with Marinelle Sapi? I totally saw that. Yeah, and that was, that was the two... Cut, you know, that Oscar Wilde thing of two nations divided by a common language. We, have, we think we speak, speak the same language, but in fact, when you actually start to do something together, between, you know, whether it's between Germany and the UK or between America and the UK, it's very, you know, it's, it's very complex and there are different cultures and there are different rules and regulations, etc. But I think the most important thing for me for, in opera is that 
all parties are actually committed to the art form of opera, and I suppose that ultimately uh, that means the artist. And you know, I've sat through a lot of new operas, and when it doesn't work, when it's a failure, as you said, which of course some some are, um, you think, oh my God, it's dead, it's over. It, opera ended with Volsek or Pelias or whatever. Yeah. It, it's over, and then you hear, then you hear something that really works. You know, I, I think this opera really works. And I was sitting on the edge of my seat. I went to the dress and I was sitting on the edge of my seat, desperate to know what happened next. And what is so great about this opera and other operas that I think, uh, contemporary operas that really do work is that they completely wholeheartedly embrace all that's possible in opera. So this, you know, the, there's a great big wonderful ensemble at the end of the first act in this. And that idea of opera that you can do in opera and in no other art form, that there are so many, there are different things happening that, you know, one voice is telling you one thing, another voice is telling you something else, the orchestra is that, telling you that something That was something else. that was, was really great about, about this collaborative process is that as it, the, the music staff at the Inn or the artistic staff and at, at the Met were both very helpful. In, in, you know, my goal was not to write a fa two hours of fabulous music. It was to m make a wonderful evening at the theater. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, the primary goal has to be the story for mm -hmm. me in, in an opera. Otherwise, you write an oratorio, yeah. and then we all go to the Southwick Center, we go to the Barbican, yeah. we sit and we listen, and it's a different thing. Making sure that everything was part of the operatic tradition, or, or if not part of, like, coming from mm -hmm. that world, was very important to me, actually. The, 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 third, the third point of this triangle is, of course, an audience, and I, and I wonder, do you think we do enough to coax audiences in to come and take a risk with new work? Or do you think in the end it, it, there's some sort of cultural difficulty about new work? I have a, I suppose I have one view on it. There is an audience, there's an enormous audience, and you know, I've had great fun in my work with London Sinfonietta and South Bank trying to reach that audience who are interested in things which are new, contemporary, and the fact that something is brand new and might be complex and might is actually a positive advantage. And there's a lot, there's a lot of people who, who have that view. There are other people who, who like the tradition of you know, coming to a symphony concert, for example, and that you know, essentially they go, they're motivated to go by hearing um, the furtherance of that tradition and variations on that tradition. Um, and I, I suppose I feel that sometimes too much energy is sort of wasted and squandered by trying to, you know, slip in a contemporary work um, in, into a, a, a sandwich of Brahms. So, you know, I, my, I believe very strongly in really going, if you're doing something new, really going out and saying, this is a piece of contemporary work, and this is, um, this is about now, and it's, it's about artists who are working now, and it's, you know, it's going to be challenging, like going to hear Das Rheingold would have been kind of mind-bogglingly challenging um, when you first went to, when it first came out. Um, but, you know, th that's the excitement of it. Look, um, I could just add to that. I mean, one of the reasons that the Sinfonietta worked so well is because even if the traditional audiences could, would, if you didn't know the music, you always knew that it would, it would be played with an intense commitment. Yeah. And that, that's what makes the Sinfonietta so special, I think, yeah. is that everyone in it from sort of the, you know, from artistic to administrative to, to the harpist to, yeah, yeah. is really committed to the work. And, that, and that's, you know, that's something that you don't necessarily always find yeah. in the orchestral tradition, for instance. And, that, and that's, where you, that's where you see, you know, the audience is being slipped a, a sort of medicinal piece of, <laughs> of Boulez, just as, just as yeah. you know, the, the last stand of the violas. They're not happy either. Do you yeah, know what I mean? So exactly. it's, a, it's a slightly, it's a, I mean, from, from my end, you know, you never want to feel like your music is an imposition on, you know, players who would be, who would be very much happier playing Rachmaninoff. You know, that's an additional thing to worry about. A last question before we, we ask the audience to join the conversation, which is really this. If we don't have new work, 
then we are in danger of, as it were, turning opera simplest into museum art, but we're, we're, we're turning our backs on something which, a piece like Two Boys, this is really a question for us, I suppose, to uh, demonstrate, which is the contemporary importance of the form. Ladies and gentlemen, would you like to ask either of our guests questions? Well, I mean, I think the way that I'm treating the internet in this piece, and you sh maybe you correct me if I'm if I'm speaking crazy talk, um, but it's it, it's more it's it's more a delivery system than than a than a thing itself. If that makes sense, it's 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 in the same way that sort of you know the printing press is, is a, a something that can be used for wonderful good and and wonderful bad. I myself am generally optimistic about most things. Um, so personally, I feel like I'm someone who's grown up with a with a healthy relationship to the internet. But definitely, it's the case that you know many people have not, and maybe I haven't, and I just don't know. I mean, and there's a, and I think I could very happily write a sort of oratorio of of how awesome the internet is. You know, my friends in my friends in Australia Australia watching their granddaughter's birth on Skype, you know, which um, in Iceland or whatever. Or um, I remember something we had a, there was a debate here talking the same uh, season with Will Self a few weeks ago where people got completely caught up in the idea of whether or not the internet was good or bad, which for me just seemed like a totally nonsensical argument. You may as well say that modes of transport are good or bad. You know, you, you can't talk about a, a skateboard and a space shuttle in the, in, you know, as, as serving the same purpose. Well, there was, I mean, uh, with the advent of sort of steam engines, there was a huge amount of, oh, yeah. of concern about what that was going to do we'll to... will miscarry and they'll die. And, and, yeah, and so. the cows were going to yeah, be hit yeah. and would, would be spooked. And there's always this kind of anxiety. And I think yeah. you know, the thing that what I like about the internet and what I like about the argument around the internet is that it really, it really reacts to what you put into it, right? And so if, if you're X, Y, or Z and you, and you, and you go on, it, that those things are sort of amplified and distorted in, in good ways or bad. In the same way, I mean, this is a, a, something that I, I'm very interested in just theoretically is email tone. And there, yeah. there are people that I know who are, are, were like best friends, yeah. but when I get those emails from them, I'm just like, yeah. you are the worst person. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, and it's a complicated kind of narrative thing. I think what's interesting for me as an audience member about the choice of an internet is a sub, the internet as a subject. Um, uh, is that it for me as an audience member it just it works musically and dramatically as an opera it's, a, it's almost like a device um, so this this thing of the chatter you know the thing the many voices it's just a gift for an operatic subject and then and, and so so strongly in this piece um, it's musically that the music drives the plot which you know just comes out of those ideas so you know, can't give anything away but there's this there's the, there's the chilling moment of reveal when you when for me the scales fell from my eyes and I understood what was happening and it was a completely musical moment because of who sings what with whom you you understand what this story has all been about in in a flash um, so I, for me this whole the whole thing is of course, it's a brilliant contemporary subject, and you know it's got potential to reach new audience and all that. But actually, in the end, for me as an audience member, it just was a great subject for a piece of music drama. That I think is where we're going to have to stop. The silence below suggests that uh, we ought to be stopping. Can I, on your behalf, thank all of our guests uh, for being with us this evening? Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs>